On this episode of the podcast, I have with me Philip Gallucci. He is an executive engineering leader. We're going to be talking about predictability versus forecasting. We're going to dive into empowering people uh, to make decisions. How do they establish priorities? How you better use agile methodologies? Uh, how granular can you get? And, and should you get that granular? I guess we're going to cover a lot of these different areas with uh, Philip. I appreciate you being on the podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here. Awesome. All right. So uh, let's start off and just maybe get a quick snapshot of just a little bit of your background to get the conversation context and we'll dive right on in. Sure. I've spent the last decade or so really building teams, creating high-performing organizations, setting technical direction and strategy, and monetizing data using insights, sometimes to launch products, other times to improve the bottom line. I'm also a community figure. I volunteer all over the place in open source. As you can see, I am an Amazon community builder, in this case, for cloud operations. And I am one of, I think, something like 25 in North America. It's pretty cool. Also, I really like dogs. I have fostered over 300 dogs with Lucky Dog Animal Rescue, which is a 501c3 charity. And I currently have something like 12 fosters at my house right now. Awesome. You're... A very busy man, so I appreciate you taking the time between uh, the charitable and uh, work functions. I'm sure you are kept busy. And if you have some links to the charity, we'll put it in the show notes for people to be able to follow as well. I guess to kind of talk about the episode, I know we're talking about predictability versus forecasting. A lot of this centering around agile methodologies and, and how you can help people make better decisions, prioritize. I guess let's maybe start at the top. Maybe actually let's talk about... I mean, I think most people understand forecasting, but let's talk about the predictability side, right? And what that exactly means in this context, and then we'll kind of go from there. Forecasting to me is more of... This is a guess of what we think the future will be. Mm -hmm. Predictability is, can you do something again, sort of the same? If you've done it before and you're asked to do it again, do you get the same outcome or at least a better outcome? which is very different. One is a guess. The other is based on culture. It's based on mindsets. It's based on the people involved. It's based on the shared goal. Absolutely. And I guess when you're looking at this from the standpoint of Agile and you know how Agile can facilitate and improve the different aspects of you know, predictability, when you're looking at this and you're looking at the methodologies and you're looking at different metrics that we're capturing, are there any specific metrics that you look for as you're kind of looking at predictability and forecasting? Definitely. First, they are supposed to, in almost strict agile terms, be able to produce the same value indefinitely, right? Like there can be a vacation. And in fact, there should be vacations. There can be a pandemic, right? That should have minor effects, but this group of people should be able to produce the same amount of value consistently and repeatedly and roughly at the same rate. If the team is improving, that rate will get better up to a ceiling. But if the team isn't producing value at a consistent rate, you've identified an opportunity. There's a reason. You have to figure out what that reason is out. Awesome. And I guess when you're kind of looking at like some of the specifics of some of those metrics to try to identify 
in the strictest terms, obviously, you know, consistency and repeatability, which will tie into the topic. Are there specific metrics that you'd like to see? I measure the number of completed demos, which is not a metric that you see very often. Mm-mm. And it's not simply an end of sprint demo. It's a demo of the product in use, right? Basically in production. That is a guarantee that value has been delivered. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that users are using it, but it's a guarantee your value has reached its destination. Interesting. I guess just out of curiosity, how did... Uh, that's, I've, I've, I'm sure it might be used by other people. I've not heard of it. But uh, I guess how did that metric come about to being important to you? There's this quote that says something like 70% of software built is never used. I forget where that comes from, but you can have all the end of sprint demos you want. You can have all the engineering leader demos you want. You can demo to your internal sales staff all you want. But if you are at not some point having that in production and doing a demo somewhere for somebody like a client, or at that point, maybe an engineer is showing a salesperson you have not really completed the value chain. Everything that this team has done is really not in use, right? Like you didn't get the value. So people compute all these metrics, but they're not ending when the value is delivered. They're ending before that. That's not to say these other metrics aren't valuable. They are. It's just there's a bigger picture to look at. That's interesting. I guess it may be something that pops into my mind because I think I've had some uh, previous guests that you know, focus on maybe more internal platforms. And the one thing I always ask them is how do they actually, you know, generate that ROI, that value, because their products are being used by so many different teams and it's always so nebulous for them. I guess in, in your view, demoing to the end user, I mean, obviously it seems like an obvious completion of the value chain. When you're looking at the different components that go in there, how does all that kind of roll up into that, you know, ultimate maybe uh, metric? Neither exist without the other you don't really call one of them platform versus product. They actually both are the product. They're sort of inseparable. Mm-hmm. There's a corollary from, I forget if it's like a senior enterprise strategist. His name is Gregor Hope. He's an Amazon architect. He's written a bunch of books in architecture. And he quote says, automation done correctly blurs the lines between building and deploying. End quote. Basically, you can't automate something separate from how you build it. You can't demo something separate from how someone's going to actually use it. Hmm. I quite like this. I, I think it's an interesting concept because I think, you know, just reflecting on what we do internally, you know, lots of recruiting companies have all kinds of metrics that in the end are measuring granular aspects of the job that are neither here nor there. They're just kind of just in time metrics or there's metrics that tell stories, but when you look at metrics of actually people taking jobs and you know actually filling seats, that's a whole different story because that is the ultimate completing the value chain for a recruiting company. I guess in your case, when you're talking about a software company and you're talking about completing the value chain, that's probably something that can be applied to different industries because the end, end goal is delivering what the customer wants, not, hey, I've delivered these two features, but you know what? You're still not going to get X, Y, Z. So I guess when you're looking at you know, this seems like obviously it's the you know, top level goal. It's kind of easy to identify, hey, how many products have been demoed? When you're working with the team and you've got to actually help them on a sprint by sprint basis, day by day, 
how does this, you know, filter down to the individual person, you know, obviously keeping them focused on delivering what they need to, but, and kind of focus on that daily activity. I think pictures speak a thousand words. Drawing a diagram of the big picture with a square and then kind of zoom in and be like, this is your piece. The number one thing you can kind of do for teams to make them high performing is give someone a sense of belonging. So when demos are done, you've got to make sure they trickle down and then call out the parts and who thank the people that did those parts so that they can see their part in use. If the demos are never shown or repeated or like mentioned, it also doesn't count, right? The team that built the stuff has to see the end result as well. But on a sprint by sprint basis, like what if you had a congressionally mandated date, like the census, for instance, right? You can't say, oops, I'm sick or oh, um, I couldn't demo because the product person wasn't here or I couldn't deploy because it was Friday or I had a spike and it took too long. You can't say any of those things. What if you even have multiple teams? It's all about creating that shared goal. If people are aligned on that goal, they will make the decisions necessary. At least you hope they will. <laughs> can't really lead a horse to water. If you could, software would be easy, right? Yeah, that's true. So you have to send these signals that like, hey, the date matters for the end product or the fact that these things actually get into the hands of the users versus just like an executive or into integration matters. Like that's a culture that in and of itself will help people stay on target for their various sprints. But since we're talking about predictability, Right. We can predict if we'll be done on time because theoretically, it's, it's not our first time building a web application or whatever it is that we're doing. Some of us have at least done it a couple of times before. And you can make assumptions. You can get with your team and actually use metrics like velocity, but not going nuts. I've even seen velocity work when people never play planning poker or alignment. They literally, as an individual, make up numbers. Individuals are generally consistent with themselves, at least to an extent. So like, it still actually works. It might not be the number you wanted or a number that means something to a lot of people, but it still works. Absolutely. And I guess when you're kind of looking at that predictability and it is an individual component to the planning process and people have to prioritize. I mean, they have to figure out what they're going to work on, what they feel they can deliver. When you're looking at that and you're trying to, as a leader, look at the predictability of the team and you mentioned you know, delivering value consistently and repeatedly, do you help manage that? Or in the strictest terms, you're leaving it up to the developer, obviously within Agile, you know, self-forming teams and they're driving that and you're just managing to the expectations they're setting? It really depends, right? You have to look at the team and make a decision. As teams are brand new, you have to do more of that. As teams get better, the hope is that you do less of it. One, because if you keep doing it, you'll never scale. And two, if you're always saying, I know, I know, why do the other people belong there? Right? At the end of the day, they belong there because they're making the decisions within some framework. There's this book called The CEO Next Door. And they talk about what makes a CEO successful. By and large, it has nothing to do with your education aside from the Fortune 500 or any of your demographics for the most part. What it really has to do with is 
what decisions are you involved in and how quickly can you make them? And how can you empower others to make those decisions when you're not there, right? They call this a decision framework. So you could see this be a company's culture or the Agile Manifesto, but you can create one of those for any given project. If you look back to, I think, 1985, there was the credo for the Tylenol incident where they recalled everything nationwide. They pointed to the first sentence that was like, the first priority is to the customers, the doctors, the patients, the clients, right? Everyone knew exactly what decisions to make because that was what their shared goal was. If the shared goal is it's a congressionally mandated date, people will make decisions based on that. And I guess, do you think, uh, you know, when you're looking at the decision framework and obviously as a, you know, you made a good observation of the CEO's main job, making decisions, making them quickly. When you're looking at, you know, let's say leaders of teams, leaders of you know, technology groups, and obviously they want as much data as they can to make a decision. You know, how granular does that data get? Because I mean, you can lose yourself within, you know, these different methodologies buried on, you know, coming up with the exact data, trying to really make sure that you're as accurate as you can be. How much, how little, what's the guideline of how much of that data you need? It's changed over time, actually. It's gone down significantly. I don't know where I know this from, but I know I read it somewhere. There's a mathematical proof somewhere that says, at the point in time you've evaluated 37% of your choices, 37% of your data, you should pick the next best thing you see. If you look back like in the 70s or 80s, the methodologies were like 90%, 100%. And it's come down over time. I don't, I don't know how they prove this, but like they go so far as to say, like, who you marry, like if you think you need to date 10 people after you've dated the third or fourth person, you should pick the next one that you like a lot, right? Because not going to improve your choices statistically after that. So data is great, but if the only thing you do is clean your data, graph it, then what are you really doing? You have to actually generate an action out of it. And I guess if you're leading the team, what are some of those actions that you're, you're looking to generate yourself? Obviously, you know, you just mentioned you need to generate an action from the data as, as the, you know, as a manager of a team. What kind of action items are you hoping to generate to help the team? Well, if I think we're starting to spend too much, I might <laughs> a cost graph and just not really say anything and see what happens. Most times people will self-act. If there's a bottleneck, say maybe front end or back end is done ahead of time or there's not enough work for one and there's too much for the other, what do you tell people to do? Well, people should have downtime, right? If you give people downtime, you can have a collision. There's a, a great story about how Google started because you cause a collision. Left a post-it note in the cafeteria, these ads suck. Someone saw it. They spent a weekend and now Google's worth, I don't know, a trillion dollars, something like that. The same thing is true in the actionable insights, if you simply post a model that doesn't have to be 10 weeks of work, it can be an estimate. It can be done in 5 or 10 minutes. It can be high level. People will generally react to that picture and do something. If you put it in a public place like a Slack channel, that will cause collisions. The way you know you've succeeded is if people have conversations about it. If you get silence, that's how you know you failed. Hmm. Interesting. 
I guess that's uh, uh, actually interesting that, you know, wanting to cause some of that collision to to foster dialogue. I guess when you're kind of looking at that and within a team, you know, obviously they want to go into their sprint planning. How much collision is good collision before, after, during? If it was me, and I back in the day used to be a developer, I would prefer to have all the collisions done ahead of time. So when we get to the sprint planning, it's just like, this is what we're doing. Okay, everyone agrees. And then you get the time back. Because at the end of the day, if you're talking about one ticket, the rest of the room is probably not involved, right? But if you're having these one-on-one collisions or these ad hocly joined threads or even Steamyard hangouts these days, then it's more targeted, it's shorter, it's focused. The people that want to be there are, they'll sort of self-select. If you don't come, then get your hand out of the pot. That's fair. I do agree that uh, some of those conversations uh, when you're sitting the sprint planning are completely just a time suck. So, and uh, yeah, I like the fact to get those collisions out of the way because inevitably it always seems like something comes up just in time. Talking about the forecasting side for a little bit, I know obviously where they kind of tie in together. You mentioned, you know, the right data. Yeah. You mentioned 37% of your choices, pick the next thing, you know, less something uh, is reliable. We're guessing. When you're looking at that guess, and you mentioned teams will get better, how many sprints do you typically like to see you know, to give a team a chance to kind of get their cadence and kind of get the right gauge? It depends, again. Like, is it a new company? Is it an old company? Is it more junior people? Is it senior people? Is it a mix? Does the team have all the resources it needs to control its own destiny, right? Like, is it a full-stack team, not a full-stack individual? Does it have a scrum coach? Does it have a product person? Does it have a technical project manager? Or is that done by the team lead or the engineering manager? All those things matter. Like, is it in the government? Is it in healthcare? Is it a startup? But by and large, I think you can see trends within two sprints even. The real trick is, does it continue in the third one? So you can sort of make a rough guess after three sprints. If your sprints are two weeks, that's six weeks. That's half a quarter. So that lines up nicely with a lot of forecasting. If you were to go back and kind of look at some of, uh, I guess, the success and failures of the teams you've seen, are there any consistent signals between the teams that are successful and the teams that you know were less successful, maybe? The teams that talk more are definitely more successful. The teams that talk more publicly if you're seeing nothing but one-one Slack conversations, that's an indication that people aren't comfortable. But if you're seeing threads, which again, aren't very noisy, but they're still public, then that's an indication of comfort. And again, people communicating. Another one is actually having like requirements. It doesn't matter how you get it. Is it an engineering or other resource, but like having requirements. If you know what you're building versus you're trying to figure out market fit or some algorithm, some machine learning model that hasn't been built yet, right? You can't time box that. You can guess at it, but you can't time box it. I really like this. Uh, I guess it kind of uh, ties back to a lot of what you've talked about. This you know, concept of teams talking publicly. You know, talk about the Slack channel, you the Google analogy. I think it really is powerful that people are. I guess, really comfortable, your team's operating at a more comfortable pace with each other. People are more open 
sharing problems. I think that is all the little signals that anybody you mentioned talking publicly are driving. Exactly. You just hit the nail on the head, sharing problems, right? If all you see is people saying, I'm done, or I can do that, or I'm doing this, you need to see people ask for help and ask questions. If the only thing you're seeing is people saying, I'm done, you're seeing everyone work as an individual. Absolutely. Thanks for being on. I think uh, some great talking points. I think if somebody wants to reach out to you, I think you might get some people interested and want to continue the dialogue. Is your LinkedIn a good place for them to reach out? Email is always good. I can't promise that I'll answer every message I get on LinkedIn because the spam on LinkedIn, oh man. (laughs) (laughs) That's so true. We'll include your email. Obviously, we'll we'll include your LinkedIn to, yeah, if it gets through, we'll include some of the links to the books and the charity as well and the show notes for anyone who's interested. Philip, thanks for being on. I appreciate it. Thanks for your time. Yeah, you're welcome. That's it for this episode. Uh, We'll be back again, different guests, different topic. Uh, Until then, two things. One, if you find the episode useful, send it to somebody else who might. That's how we've uh, grown the podcast. So that's always appreciated. If you want me to talk about something, just drop me a line. Let me know. I'll try to find a guest to do that. Until next time. Goodbye.